Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Fantasy, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Martin. Today I'm talking with Cassandra Rose Clark about her new fantasy novel, The Beholden, in which two sisters find themselves drawn into a dangerous quest. Locus says, Aside from the very compelling and unpredictable catalog of suspenseful incidents that propel adventure, Clark offers a host of other delights. And here's my review. Two impoverished sisters, one with magical gifts and one with ladylike manners and pretty dresses, brave the wilds of the jungle to find a river goddess and compel her to grant them a boon. They're accompanied by a former pirate, Eco, who is hired to protect him. But wishes are never granted for free. Years later, Celestia's wish has come true. She's happily married to a renowned former adventurer, Lyndon, who had the money to save her family's plantation and the know-how to make it thrive. Celestia is content with the resumption of her privileged life and her long-desired pregnancy. Her sister, Zara, is now studying magic at the Secret Academy, now that her duty to her sister and the plantation is done. As for Aiko, he's cavorting with a beautiful and lusty goddess in her ice palace. Life just can't stay so good. The river goddess has not forgotten, and now she has a perilous quest she demands of the three. A dark mage, long presumed gone from this world, is making his presence known. There are disturbing rumors from the far north of corpses that cannot rest but continue to walk as if alive. The alarming news causes the emperor to command Celestia's husband, the former adventurer, to join a party to hunt down a mage and destroy him. The river goddess has other plans. She wants the mage brought to her safely. Celestia and her husband Lyndon now find themselves on opposite sides, each a pawn of a greater force. Can their marriage survive the struggle? Can Celestia and Izara, two very different people, work together as a team with the unwilling former pirate Aiko? Only the end of the journey will reveal these answers. So now let's welcome Cassandra Rose Clark to the show. So now we've got Cassandra Rose Clark herself to talk about the beholden. Hello. Hi, Cassandra. Hi. So I'll start off with the questions. First about the sisters. Uh, How are Celestia and her sister Zara alike, and in what way are they different? Well, I mean, I I definitely wrote them to be sort of opposites, um, to kind of have opposite strengths. Um, So Celestia... She, they're both, you know, sort of like landed ladies, aristocracy, um, mm-hmm. but Celestia is really good at that sort of thing, right? Like she's she's very proper. She knows sort of all the rules of propriety. She knows how to sort of engage herself in that world. Um, meanwhile, Azara, although she grew up in that world, doesn't really fit in with it very well. She's sort of more awkward, kind of shy. She's very bookish. Um, and she actually, you know, at the start of the book, goes off to to sort of study at a magical academy where she's isolated from the world, and that's like kind of her thing, right? So mm-hmm. she kind of is 
she's the one that's like kind of book smart. She can research. She can kind of do all of that stuff. Um, and Celestia is the one who can sort of go out and sort of network with people, talk with people, and sort of find information out that way. So I I really kind of had fun sort of like with that idea of having them be opposites and having opposite strengths so that when they work together, they kind of have their bases covered. Mm-hmm. And Isara and Celestia are close in some ways. I mean, the book starts mm-hmm. off with Isara helping Celestia. She tracks down the river goddess. She uses the river goddess's special secret name and commands her to come to them. And they discuss what they wish with her. Uh, Celestia wants to find a husband with money. Wouldn't be bad if he was nice as well. (laughs) Because she wants to restore their ancestral lands to prosperity. And Celestia's Mm -hmm. wish is actually granted. She meets and marries Lyndon. Uh, Not only is he wealthy, he seems to be pretty good-looking. He's loving. uh, He's very happy about the baby that's coming. So is he as good as he seems? Is he the wish that she wanted? I mean, yes, he is. Um, You know, I mean, in terms of what she asked the goddess for, Mm -hmm. um, she asked, and she got it, right? Like, he meets all of those checkboxes, and he's got bad to her or anything um but you know the kind of the idea was that well i got what i thought i wanted um but as the sort of external forces um the sort of things that are happening around them the sort of wider the wider problem i'm trying to avoid like just saying what's going (laughs) right i think you're doing good (laughs) yeah like the, the, the sort of wider situation um you know if, if they didn't exist in that, that context, he would be the boon and everything would be fine. But because there's something else happening that he has to then go off and, and sort of do, they wind up sort of becoming antagonists, not necessarily because he's a bad person or he's like, he's actually a secret curse or anything like that, but just because the because of what's going on and what sort of is driving the plot of the book. Um, she can't sort of stay in what she thought she wanted. Like she sort of thought, oh, once I get a husband and he has the money and we have, we have the sort of wealth to support our lands, everything's going to be fine. But the truth is it's not right because there's other things happening. Um, and so that was kind of the idea with him um, mm-hmm. was that, you know, it's just like, well, you think you're, you expect your life to go one way and you think, oh, if I get this one thing, everything's going <laughs> to fall into place for me. Uh, and it, it doesn't always work out like that. Yeah, he does check all the boxes. I mean, it's not revealed yeah. that he has a secret sadistic side or anything. It's just that right, fate yeah. puts him yeah. in antagonistic positions. Exactly. So uh, as we were talking about before, Azara is different from Celestia. She doesn't want to be a noble lady. Uh, She's fascinated by magic, and uh, it was interesting the way you discussed her magical studies at the academy. There was actually a visual component. And then uh, I think I, as well as other readers, were possibly curious to have you discuss the difference between alchemy and magic more. Yeah, so... um... You know, whenever you write a fantasy novel like this, there's always like, oh, you have to build a magic system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, there, you know, there's like a way that magic has to work. And so I sort of approached it with the idea that in this world, there's sort of different approaches to magic. Um, 
so Izara, as uh, because she's in it, part of the aristocracy, is expected to do a type of magic that involves sort of calling on the gods and asking them to do favors for you, um, slash sort of bullying them around to do favors for you. <laughs> um, and so like that, that was sort of like one approach to magic. Um, but because she did that when she was younger and sort of realized that maybe this is not the best way to do it. Um, it, This is sort of kind of pretty dangerous. (laughs) She said, I don't want to actually go that route. Um, So her approach is, is is alchemy, which is, I kind of, I sort of presented as being sort of like more sort of logical or even scientific um, where uh, you sort of go into this realm and can actually see the magic that's in the world, and you sort of look at it almost as um, like a like a math formula, and you have to figure out the formula. And once you can kind of uh, fix it or kind of shape it the way you want it, um, that's where the magic comes from. And I have to be honest, writing that I, I don't know if I, I didn't like set out to do this but when I was writing it I was like this is sort of like how hacking works and like bad I was just like, thinking that movies, right? <laughs> where it looks like a video game like you go in and then there's like these like cool I'm thinking like the movie hackers and there's like mm-hmm. visuals and it's, it was kind of like that um, like I definitely got some inspiration from that of sort of you go in and you just sort of shape these images around and it changes something in the wire world so it's sort of it's akin to like programming or kind of using math, sort of just more scientific approach. Um, and then there's a third type of magic that I don't touch on a whole lot in the book, but they mention a couple times, which is just sort of like elemental magic, which would be sort of like folk magic type practices. Um, so it's like I just sort of created like three approaches to magic. They all sort of do the same thing. Like they have the sort of like you're kind of shaping the reality, but you approach it in different ways. Well, and possibly when you do alchemy, you may not be beholden <laughs> after you do exactly, alchemy. Yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of the idea. You don't, you don't have to like pay up to the guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's a little safer. <laughs> well, uh, let's discuss Omera for a little while. She shows up maybe about halfway through the book, but she has an important role. She's not human. She's a fearsome muscular, very muscular, gray-skinned woman, she is female, uh, that they meet, and she's wearing warrior garb. She ends up actually joining the quest, wanting to find a mage for reasons of her own. Uh, Her kind have warred against humans under the direction of the mage, and so the three companions fear and distrust her, even though they let her come along because they think she may be better at finding a mage than they are. So was there a lesson to be learned uh, when Omera joins the humans? Yeah, so I think there's definitely a lesson to be learned there, um, just in terms of, uh, you know, not making assumptions about people. Um, Omera's character is sort of my take on an orc. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. Like her people are supposed to be sort of orc-like. I've always had sort of a a soft spot for orcs. even though they get the short shrift <laughs> so often. But I, I like that idea of sort of the, the – and in the book, the characters don't actually believe that her her people are real. They think they're like a myth that was mm-hmm. made up by um, sort of their enemies to, to discredit them like propaganda. And then it turns out they are real, 
but they're not, you know, evil like the propaganda stories would have led them to believe. Um, so I definitely, so it was definitely kind of about them sort of seeing her as a person and learning to work with her and again, sort of learning what are her strengths, what are her weaknesses, um, and how she sort of adds to their group and she can do things that Azara and Celestia can't really do. They're not fighters. She can fight. Um, so she kind of adds a little, a little something as well. And also you mentioned she was kind of like an orc. And one thing that struck me in uh, all the movies and books that I've read, which may not be all that many, but there is no gender differentiation between orcs as there is. There are female elves and male elves. Well, yeah. I guess there's not too many female dwarfs either, but orcs, it's just like, hey, who who knows what gender they are? They're just like these disgusting beasts. But Omera yeah. is a woman. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel especially like the Tolkien orcs, like in the mm-hmm. movies, like as far as there are no female orcs, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how that's supposed to work. But uh, yeah, so I definitely, I definitely wanted, that was something I wanted to avoid. Yeah. Well, the gods of the world that you've created have their own name. They're uh, called the Ariana as a group. And various characters during the course of the book accuse them of playing games. Is that a fair accusation? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think so. I think the I think the idea with the gods is that they have their own agendas and their own things that they're trying to accomplish mm-hmm. um, and they're definitely playing games against each other and kind of manipulating each other and then humans sort of get swept up in it so I don't know if I would say they're playing games against humans specifically like they're not purposely trying to be fickle but because they're doing their own thing and they've got sort of a big picture view and they certainly don't tell the humans everything that they know um, as the <laughs> characters they certainly the don't <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, it can, it is certainly going to feel like they're playing games, but, um, presumably they kind of have their reasons for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because they're, they're sort of so, so far removed from humanity. They're like, oh, I don't, we don't need to tell them this thing. And then the humans are like, ah, you kind of <laughs> did, <laughs> but it's just sort of a, a, a lack of communication or a lack of understanding because they're just on sort of different realms of existence, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them live in palaces. Uh, one right. thing that struck me is the hidden palaces in the book. Uh, the emperor has a hidden palace. Of course, he's not a god, but he is the emperor of the land Celestia lives in. And the mage has a palace that moves around. And even the ice goddess Shima, Eko's lover, who's basically not uh, trying to impose on people. She has a palace in a remote northern location. So traditionally palaces were built on fixed high points so that the rulers could impress and awe the surrounding population, not hide. So what does it say about the engagement of the rulers in your world that all their palaces seem to be remote or hidden? That's a really cool question. Um, that is not something that I certainly thought about when I was writing it. Um, you know, I think for the gods um, and the mage, um, who, again, that's 
kind of edging into spoiler territory. Mm-hmm. Um, they have reasons to hide. Um, they sort of don't necessarily want to be out and about amongst humanity. And the mage in particular is actively <laughs> trying to hide himself, as which is a spoiler, but there's no way to avoid saying it. Um, <clears throat> so that made, to me, that uh, that was sort of why their palaces were hidden. Like, I definitely had a specific reason. They're trying to actively trying to hide. They didn't mm-hmm. escape. Um, you know, for the emperor, that's such a cool, that's such a cool thought. I mean, when I was coming up with his palace, um, I was just, I was actually thinking about sort of the river um, that is a big part of the story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a huge river and river basin that's like basically where this country or this kingdom exists. Um, and so I was like, well, that river is so important to the country. It made sense to me that the emperor might want to sort of hoard the source of that river and sort of present himself as being like, oh, I am the source of all of this bounty, just like mm-hmm. I'm the, the, the river is the source of all the bounty. So I imagined his palace being at the river source, so up in a mountain, right? And his, his throne room is actually built on top of the spring that sources this whole river. So that was what, what I was thinking with him. Um, and mm-hmm. I, it didn't occur to me that until you, until I saw the question, <laughs> like, oh yeah, he is hidden. He's hidden and he's like isolated. And it's really hard to get up to his palace. Um, and it's not like you can go see anybody, like the regular people are ever going to see this huge palace on the side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess they do know about it, right? So he sort of presents, he sort of shrouds himself in mystery in, in a couple of different ways in the book. So I suppose that sort of fits with him. But yeah, my thinking was really, oh, he built his palace over the source of the river. And so that's how, how he wound up sort of with his hidden palace. <laughs> well, you did live in Texas for a long time, so we know water rights can play a yeah. very large role in politics. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So Iko, moving on to him, uh, Shima's boyfriend, so to say, <laughs> he's basically pulled away from his uh, carnal activity with her and forced to join the quest for the river goddess, or the one that she demands. And he's not very happy about that because mm-hmm. the wish that the sisters had had nothing to do with him. He's In a way, he's an incidental character, and then he's thrust into a leading role. So I wondered how you viewed his contribution to the quest and why you wanted to create that character. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I like so I like this idea of, you know, these sisters are sort of playing around with God, mm-hmm. they're sort of playing with fire, so to speak. Um, and I like the idea that they would wind up sort of inadvertently roping someone else in because they don't fully understand what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. It was so his, originally, you know, it's sort of like, oh, they go, we're going to call us God, we're going to ask for a boon. We'll have to pay up. And they don't even think, oh, yeah, this, the guy who's, like, driving our boat is also going to have to pay because he's there with us. And so it was sort of just a, you know, it's just a sort of show. Like, they didn't think this thing through. This, this stuff is more complicated than it looks. And then I like the idea, just from sort of a storytelling perspective, of having this character who's totally different from both of the sisters, right? So the sisters are very different from each other um, themselves, but they're both fairly proper in their way. Like even Azara is, is, you know, reserved. Mm-hmm. And so I like to having this like former pirate, <laughs> like getting drunk and it just sort of like being kind of annoying to them. I thought that that added sort of a fun dynamic um, because he sort of adds an element of 
sort of conflict and he can be kind of snarky and, and sort of comment like, what are you guys doing this for? Um, because they're also not as worldwide, like sort of street smart, streetwise, um, because of their background, both of them. So he also adds that element of sort of being able to sort of maybe navigate um, sort of lower places and, and that kind of thing and, and having a kind of different understanding of the world than the two sisters. Um, the other thing about Iko is he is not – He's not from the Seraphine, which is their kingdom, mm-hmm. and he's not from the Northern Kingdom. That they're they're former. They were former enemies. Now they're allies. Um, so he also offers sort of a third party perspective. Of I was not involved because the the two kingdoms had this big conflict, a big war, five hundred years ago, and so he's able to come in and be like, well, I my people were not involved with this war. I don't understand why y'all are like this. So he's able to kind of comment on the situation, um, especially that that conflict between the two countries. Uh, So that was another thing that I got, that he sort of, another role he played. Yeah, kind of provide a neutral perspective in some way about the politics. Yeah, exactly. So uh, many fantasy and horror novels present death and decay as an evil power. It's almost a trope where... You know, the sorcerer turns into a skull or he moves his robe aside and it's a skull or he touches something and there's worms all over. So your world has a god of decay as well. He's the twin of growth. And uh, are death and decay the threats that they seem to be? Uh, definitely not. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that. Um, you know, I I, I was kind of purposely trying to subvert some of those tropes of Mm -hmm. the dark lord he lives in his (laughs) castle nothing grows there um you know there's skulls everywhere like look at board i know i can always go back to lord of the rings but look at bordor there are no plants in bordor how are they feeding all of those orcs right like it doesn't (laughs) really make sense but it just kind of looks cool um so I was purposely trying to subvert that um and the reason you know decay and growth are twins is because in real life, as in the book, um, they have they exist. They can't exist without the other, right? You can't have growth without having things die and decay into the soil. Um, you know that creates the nutrients through which new things can grow. Um, <clears throat> we have these sort of natural cycles um, where things are fallow for a little while, um, or plants go dormant. Um, <clears throat> you know, if everything stopped dying, like that would definitely cause problems. Um, mm-hmm which is one of the, the ideas that I sort of look at in the book. It's like, what would happen if <laughs> decay just stopped happening? Well, it's um, a really good point because, for instance, cancer is when our cells that are programmed to die are no longer dying at the normal rate. They're living and making more clones. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah unfettered growth is mm-hmm. always a good thing. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I was definitely, I was playing around with that just as sort of a reflection, I think, of reality and then also wanting to just sort of subvert some of the classic fantasy tropes with dark lords while keeping like the cool aesthetic, but, Mm -hmm. um, letting it kind of make some more, make more sense than it often does. Yeah. Sometimes it seems like it's just a repeat of the previous six novels that have been bestsellers. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, uh, what are you working on now? So I well, I have another book coming out um, this summer, which is completely different from The Beholder, and it's a paranormal romance novel. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's called Singing with the Devil, um, although it also kind of has Dark Lord type figure, I guess, but in a completely different setting, milieu. Um, so that's my, my next project, my next book that'll be released, and I'm also editing another novel, um, working on some other things that I can't can't quite talk about yet, um, but those will be getting announced soon. Well, what's the best way for your fans to keep up with you and see those announcements? Yeah, so probably, honestly, the best way is probably to go to my website, sign up for my newsletter, CassandraRoseClark.com, um, mm-hmm. or just Google Cassandra Rose Clark. Uh, it, should, it should pop up for you. Um, <clears throat> but I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. So if you go to my website, you can find those links and follow me there. Um, I often make I do often make announcements on Twitter. I'm, my Twitter handle is impossible to say out loud. It's, it's a pun on my initials. Mm-hmm. Um, it's C or C. S-E-E-O-R-S-E-A. That's why I tell people, well, just go to my website. <laughs> Probably find easiest. Find the link to my Twitter. It's a lot easier than trying to, like, write out the the handle. Because, like I said, it does not work when I say it out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, that that's the best way to find me. Okay, well, thanks so much for taking time out of your morning and your writing schedule to talk with us today. Of, of course. Those are great questions. Thanks. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy. I've been talking to Cassandra Rose Clark about her fantasy novel, The Beholden. In July, I'll be featuring A Justice of Kings by Richard Swan, a low fantasy novel about competing political powers and a young clerk who is caught in the middle. I'm your host, Gabrielle Martin. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more at Gabrielle Author. Till next time.